Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Doug Johnson. He's the president and executive recruiter at Valor Partners. Doug, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I think what you guys are doing is, is actually really interesting, but maybe before we kind of get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and kind of start off with where you grew up. Sure. I grew up in uh, northern Minnesota. I was um, about 100 miles away from the Canadian border, so effectively sure. I was in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> sure, man, sure. So walk me through kind of how you got passionate about kind of you, you were a pro tennis player correct i was a teaching pro i was okay. never i was never good enough to play on the tour but i was passionate about enough about it to to help other people learn the game okay so how did so you so i coached oh go ahead sorry I was just going to say, so I coached all over the country with some, some pretty neat people. Sure. So how did you kind of fall in love with tennis early up? Uh, you know, good question. I was I grew up in a community that <clears throat> was a, a hockey-playing community. I mean, sure. most of Minnesota is a hockey-playing community, but northern Minnesota is especially passionate about it. Uh, and most of my friends were hockey players. I was never uh, big enough or fast enough or skilled enough to to play the game uh, at the high school level or certainly beyond that. Uh, so I needed to find something to do. And for whatever reason, uh, my dad put a tennis racket in my hand uh, at a pretty early age, and I just started playing. Uh, I enjoyed it as much uh, as probably anybody. And one of the things I would find myself doing early on in northern Minnesota when we still had snow on the tennis courts into April, which would have been our high school season, is I would grab the shovel and I would get dropped off the tennis courts and I would shovel off the courts, anything that I could do to sort of get out and start playing a little bit sooner. Uh, that, was, that was pretty typical of most years. Sure. I, I think that's great. So you you went to university and took psychology, right? Correct? That is correct. So what made you kind of go to university and take that? Uh, well, I actually started in engineering. Uh, okay. I was sort of going to follow in the, the footsteps of my dad. Um, we've got a, quite a few engineers in my family. And what I found was that with the class load my freshman year and the tennis practice schedule and the tennis match schedule and all of the traveling uh, that it was just too much and i really didn't i didn't enjoy uh the heavy math and sciences i could do it but it, the amount of time that it took uh and the lack of enjoyment sort of pushed me in a different direction uh so then i actually turned my attention i thought i would be a business major uh, and I found that I, I disliked that even more than engineering. <laughs> uh, but I was I was taking psychology elective courses, and I found that I really enjoyed those. Uh, so that's that's where I ended up going, and where I got my degree in. Sure. No, I I think that's that's great. So you also basically, how did you go from kind of being in the psychology sports world into kind of founding your own kind of company? So it's a good question. 
so when I was doing my, my graduate work out in California, I was studying clinical sports psychology, okay. which was effectively the study of performance. And uh, at the time, the, the dream or the idea was get the degree, which is a pretty unusual degree at the time, uh, go out, work with professional athletes, have a lot of fun. And what I found was that after I got my degree, uh, I did some work with, with high school and college athletes. I, I talked to a lot of professional teams, and what I kept being told over and over and over again was that in the world of guaranteed contracts, those guys, they were already getting paid, and that at that point, uh, there was a stigma, a negative one, that was attached with anything having to do with psychology. As a general rule, it's much more accepted now to work with a sports psychologist or a performance, um, you know, anybody that would work on sort of mental performance around the game to get a competitive edge. Right. Uh, but back when I got my degree, which was in the mid-90s, uh, not so much. So the people that, that had the ability to pay me had less interest in working with me. Interesting. So it, that, that career never really took off, unfortunately. But what I did find was that the same aspects of athletic performance and optimal performance in athletics absolutely apply to business. And I get to use them every day still. Interesting. So I, I know like just kind of you, you worked at some companies and, and whatnot, but I, I kind of want to get into what exactly do you guys do at Valor and kind of how do you guys kind of take what you learned in the sports world and bring it into the in, into the business world? Because I feel like there's a lot of industries, sports being one of them, um, into business. And I, and I think kind of like being a musician kind of plays into the startup kind of tech world as well. And we can get into that. And, and I kind of want your opinion on that as well um, a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But what do you guys kind of do at Belor and how are you guys kind of tie in the, the sports into kind of the business world? Okay. So we're an executive search firm. Uh, we started in 2002. Okay. We work almost exclusively with technology companies of varying sizes. I mean, we worked with you know, monstrous companies like uh, – Microsoft and SAP and Salesforce.com, and then we worked with little tiny companies that are, you know, trying to just get their funding and trying to find a couple of key executives and, and really everything in between. Sure. Uh, and that's that's pretty much what we've done since we got started. Uh, the tie-in to sports is probably less of a sports tie-in and more of a performance tie-in. Okay, interesting. Uh, you know, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of ways that organizations can go about the business of finding talent. Um, the, the challenges have remained the same and probably will remain the same uh, for years to come, which is, you know, when you, when you get into the business of finding the right person, that, that encompasses a lot of different characteristics. You've got to have the right background and the right experience. Uh, sometimes that it's in the right industry and, or selling to the right audience or the right customer base to have the greatest value. But even if you find that stuff, you've still got to have the right timing. You've still got to have the right things to be able to offer that candidate that will effectively get that individual interested enough to leave their current employer. I think one of the things that's a little bit different about us versus other firms, although uh, you'll see this with um, you know, with quite a few search firms, is that rarely are we working with people that are unemployed. 
Sure. Um, our clients engage us most of the time to go out and find the best talent that we can find. Uh, and most of the time, uh, the vast majority of the time, that uh, includes people that are working someplace else and oftentimes with competitors. So we've really got to understand you know, what it is that, that drives somebody, what their career goals are. We really have to understand our candidate um, first before we can determine do we have a fit or a match uh, between this individual and, and the opportunity that we're being asked to help fill. Sure. So how do you guys, and you don't have to kind of give me away all your like um, secrets around that, but like how do you guys even kind of start that search? Because do you go to LinkedIn? Do you use other kind of networks? Have you guys like kind of how do you guys kind of find those candidates? Because I think in certain cases, some people, especially if they've been at a job a long time or, or they're pretty high up, they don't they don't even really spend time kind of networking in the recruitment space or, or kind of looking for a job or even maybe even promoting themselves online. Correct. Yeah. Uh, most people, so, uh, so what you're striking at is, is the primary and fundamental difference between uh, what search firms do and what, for example, a recruiting agency might do or what an organization might get on their own by placing uh, a job ad or a job posting somewhere. Uh, but the first thing we really do is we engage our client in a conversation about what is it that they're trying to find, you know, what is the goal that they're trying to accomplish, really what is it that they need this person to, to help them do or help them achieve. That's the first thing because the best indicator, if you're a believer anyway, that the best indicator of future performance is past performance uh, and an organization has a certain objective, then finding somebody that has done that before and can see around some of the corners that are inevitably going to come, uh, that's, that's critically important because that shortens sort of the number of errors that might be made along the way, uh, but it also shortens the up-to-speed time uh, and the potential to make a positive impact more quickly. Uh, so the first thing we do is we engage in that conversation really get to understand not only what our client's looking for, but also some aspects about the company, the culture, the individual that this person is going to report to, what their personality is, what their likes and dislikes are. Because it doesn't matter, Kevin. If I, if I presented you with your dream job and everything sounded great and you went and met with the person that you were going to be working with and for and you didn't like the person, doesn't matter how good the fit is. Sure. I mean, even if you were to take the job every day, you're going to be miserable working for this horrible person that you don't get along with. It's just it's a, a recipe for disaster. So we do take a lot of time to really get to know our clients and what matter to them. Uh, and for us, I mean, it's it's never been about the fee. I mean, let's let's make no mistake. Uh, you know, executive recruiters can can do fairly well financially and. Some people would look at how much we charge uh, on a search-by-search -search basis and you know, shake their head at, at what those fees are sometime. But it's really about the value that we help to create. And if we, if we don't get the right fit, you know, it doesn't matter how much or how little we might make. It's, it's going to be short-lived. Sure. We're not going to create the value that we were brought in to create in the first place. So our objective here has always been let's let's make a great match let's find the right person where we can sort of elevate the candidate's career help our client achieve the goals that they have in mind and then everything else is sort of the byproduct so when your driver is just a successful outcome 
uh, certainly helps to make every day a little bit more enjoyable. Sure. No, that makes makes a lot of sense. So do you guys kind of have your own internal database then of people that you've kind of worked with before? Because why why I ask that is I, I, I look at like, for, for example, a startup. And if you bring in, I don't know, it doesn't really matter, but like you bring in like a, a CEO to take the company from say like zero to, I don't know, like a, a certain period. At, at some point, that person either might not be the person to get to kind of the next level. And, and by next level, I don't necessarily mean financial. It's just at a certain point, right. like everybody kind of has a skill set. And I think at some point that person they're they're not really they don't either maybe they don't want to or they're not qualified or they've never done it where they've gone from kind of like um <clears throat> like if i if i grow if i got you guys to hire me like a ceo and i want to go from like you know drawing on a napkin to my first like 100,000 users or something but like i might mm -hmm. need a ceo after that where just because that have been kind of through it before to grow to kind of the next level or or you know and maybe i need kind of different people at different levels in a company but that doesn't mean that they can't that person once they're kind of done growing with where i need them to go that you know you, it might just be kind of for them to move on so do you guys kind of keep a database of people that you're like you know what like here's this guy for a few years or girl for a few years that can really go from you know a to Z in this kind of growth space that you're looking to go. And then, you know, maybe we'll swap you in somebody later. And I, and I think the best example is like, obviously like the two Google founders, they, they kind of brought in like Eric Schmidt for a number of years to kind of take them to the next level. And then, you know, he kind of stepped down and now there's like a new guy in, in, in place and his name escapes me. Of course it does right now, but do you know what I, you know what I'm kind of getting at that, that there's different kind of people that have been through different things as the lifespan of a company as they get bigger. Yeah. Uh, you know, those things that you're describing, uh, play to somebody's skill set and experience and usually also plays to uh, what they enjoy or, or love about their work. And what you're talking about, those transitions are pretty normal, especially in the software world. Sure. Uh, you know, we work with a lot of organizations where oftentimes you'll have a technologist founder who really understands and is very passionate about the technology that they've created. Okay. And they'll wrap a company around it somebody will will listen to their vision and their passion about what it is that this stuff will help companies to do and will give them millions of dollars to go out and, and sort of grow the technology and productize it maybe monetize it but th at the end of the day you know a lot of those folks are not they're not business people they don't know how to scale a company they don't know how to hire sales and marketing and engineering and you know administrative people and and all that that's just not their their gig so they take it as far as they can take it and then you know, investors, board, oftentimes the founders themselves realize this is as far as I can I can take this thing. Sure. So those those transitions are really normal. I mean, it's a different skill set to take a company from say, you know, zero to ten million or zero to twenty million uh, versus a company from twenty million to a hundred million. That's just a different skill set. Sure. Uh, or to like and, go to IPO and, or like. Oh yeah, stuff like that, right? Yeah, you'll 
you'll often see companies that that stare down the sort of the the barrel of what's our goal if our goal is a, an IPO 2 years from now what are the strategic pieces we need to put in place now for example uh if if that's your time frame if you're within that sort of 24 month horizon to to a potential IPO or that's the plan you know you want to get a CFO in place that has that experience that's done S1 paperwork that's done the road show that understands that stuff because the last thing you want to do is show the marketplace or those groups that are going to take you public uh, sort of inconsistency or a lack of stability around the finance position. That's one of those positions you absolutely want stabilized. So CEOs and boards will often go out with that being the plan, find a CFO that has gone through that IPO process previously and, and bring that person in well in advance of that actually happening. You know, that's just that's just one example. Sure. But those sorts of transitions happen all the time. Sure. And, and you guys kind of help with that kind of stuff? Yeah. I mean, it's, we, don't, we don't have any single specialization around saying, for example, oh, you know, our specialty is to work with companies in growth phase where they've got to be X amount of revenue. But if they, if they hit whatever, 100 million or 200 million, we're done working with them. Uh, we've worked with companies at all stages and you know, the ability to go out and find the right people is often not based on having a great network of contacts, though I like to think that we've got a pretty good network of contacts. Uh, but it's the ability to really listen to the client, what they need, and then help to mark the map or to, to map the market of potential candidates and then get those people on the phone. And these days, you know, the biggest challenge I think that we've found in recruiting today versus even two or three years ago so people don't use the phone anymore, yeah, and the phone is absolutely critical to what it is that we're trying to accomplish. I mean, we can't get to know somebody by reading their LinkedIn profile. Right. We can't get to know somebody by exchanging, you know, ten emails with them. That's not that's not helpful. Sure, um, that's the biggest challenge. And I think for for organizations out there, they probably find the same to be true. Is that a lot of times, you know, they're relying on internal recruiters. And those internal recruiters have challenges over and above what I might have in terms of getting in contact with somebody. Uh, it's just a it's a real challenge to get people to engage in a conversation these days. Sure. No, I I think that that makes a lot of sense. So, you like we've obviously and the the space I know the most is kind of the software space, and and you guys mm -hmm. do um, kind of recruitment in other spaces as well. So. How does kind of the healthcare and the industrial space kind of, how do you guys kind of work with um, companies in, in those spaces? Is it kind of a similar process or is it a bit different or does it really depend on kind of what the company is looking for? It's, the process itself is, is absolutely the same. Okay. Um, and the process is the same whether we're talking about finding a, a C-level executive or a vice president uh, or an individual contributor. Um, you know, we still have to do the same things. We still have to pull the same levers. We still have to go out and do our market research and reach out to lots and lots of people and engage them in conversation and qualify them in or out, uh, evaluate their background, skills, fit, all of those things. So the process is, is really the same, no matter what industry we're working in uh, or what, potential position we might be working on. 
Sure. No, that that makes sense. And I, I kind of figured that. I, I've always just kind of been, I guess, curious with that because the, obviously the person is usually working in a space you're recruiting for. Do you find that the skills that you're recruiting for can kind of go between the different industries? Uh, you know, that's a lot dependent upon two things. I mean, one is what is the position, and two, where are the interests of the candidate? Uh, I think the, the most important thing to sort of think about here is that when somebody engages an executive search firm, really what they're, what they're doing is they're trying to, to do a couple of things. One, have a fair level of confidence that the person that's out talking to people in the space knows more than they do. So every day I'm in the market talking to people about what's happening at certain companies, what companies are doing well, what companies are doing poorly. Uh, so I'm, I'm loaded up with all this industry information that for the people that are working inside of an organization, I mean, they're busy working. They're not, their job isn't to pay attention to all of the things that my job is to pay attention to. Um, so, you know, these organizations are engaging me for a level of expertise that I can bring, but they're really engaging me to mitigate risk. So, you know, a company is relying on me to bring them somebody that ideally has done the job or is doing the job they need done today. And the idea is, is that if they can find somebody that understands the job, has done it, has been successful, uh, that that will mitigate their risk of not being successful or of failure in adding this person to the organization. Um, and that's, you know, that's important when you're talking about people that are going to impact the bottom line to the tune of you know, millions of dollars a lot of the time. Sure. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I know we've kind of talked about this before um, in a previous chat we had, but you guys or you guys have focused on kind of female leadership and kind of diversity in, in kind of the workplace. And I know that's kind of been a kind of a hot topic in the last, um, you know, couple of years, I would say. And it seems even just in 2017, there's been kind of a, a bunch of kind of good and bad publicity kind of around it. And, and so I'm kind of curious to know your guys's take on kind of how you guys kind of see see that because i think uh, in my opinion the more diversity you have with people of all different backgrounds the, the better and stronger your company is but how do you guys kind of recruit that because i think that adds another layer of complexity when somebody's looking for somebody with a certain skill set while trying to make their team as diverse as possible yeah uh so it's an it's an interesting uh, subject. And I, I sort of focused on this or started focusing on it, um, I don't know, a couple of years ago uh, when I had uh, a global C-level executive at a Fortune 500 company specifically request that I find female candidates for the two searches that she wanted me to take on. It wasn't, it wasn't a you know, if you stumble across some people, we'd really appreciate some diversity in our in our candidate field. It was you must bring me female candidates. Okay. It was it was a must, uh, and it was in that conversation that I started to look back on previous conversations with other clients 
that had requested the same, something that I hadn't really paid attention to uh, because it was more at the end of the conversation, we'd go through all the characteristics and background that an organization or executive might want in their next candidate for this search that they were asking me to take on. And it was sort of one of those uh, elbow in the ribs, hey, by the way, if you happen to have some female candidates or if you could find some women for this role, that'd be really great. Uh, but it wasn't, you know, a strict requirement. Uh, but it got me thinking about what is that, and then I sort of immersed myself uh, in the subject of gender and business. Uh, because when I'm when I'm focusing on diversity, I mean, there's lots of categories of diversity. Sure. Uh, for me, I really focus on on women in tech. Um, I don't know, you know, I, I can't, I can't really point to anything that, that drives me. Yeah, I've got a daughter and of course I've got a mother and, sure. uh, you know, I've been around women my entire life, but you know, that, that wasn't, it wasn't anything that, that really drove me around that subject matter. Uh, but the more women that I talk to about helping them to advance their careers or helping them to build their teams, you know, there started to be some, some pretty consistent themes just in terms of, sort of what they had to deal with in working in tech. And I'm sure it's the same for lots of fields, but I only work in the tech industry. But the stories were all, you know, for all intents and purposes, Kevin, they were all the same. Sure. You know, just about every woman that I talked to, almost without exception, had some horror story of working with men or, uh, you know, stuff that would be stereotypic. You know, oh, we've set up a meeting. It's going to be at the local strip club. You know, that sort of thing is it's so commonplace, it, you can't even believe it. And there would be a lot of uh, men and maybe some women out there that would shake their head and say, oh, that doesn't really happen. And I'm here to tell you, it happens a lot. Sure. And, uh, just not you know, invited, I'm not, right? Maybe. Oh, no, they're absolutely invited. Okay. Um, you know, and that's, and that's sort of the real, the real shame of it is that you know these are these are important business meetings that are just you know oftentimes set up in the most inappropriate ways or sure. with the most inappropriate circumstances or settings and it's really it's really pretty ridiculous and I'm not you know I'm not going to change that I mean there's some guy uh I promise you it's a guy that <laughs> thinks that that's a good idea and it's a horrible idea and it's it's a really complex problem to solve because what you're really doing is you're really having to get into the minds of people and change them, which sure. is really hard to do. So in you know to to some degree, one of the things that we're trying to do here within our business with all of our clients is to work with organizations that one feel like uh, gender diversity inside of their organizations is, is an important thing, and then we make every effort that we can to make sure that we include you know, highly qualified uh, female candidates into all of our searches. And one of the challenges in tech is that women are just vastly outnumbered by men. Sure. Uh, and so you get into this, this unique challenge of, for companies where they've got an open position, it would take half the time to find a qualified slate of male candidates, but then to, to add a qualified female candidate or multiple female candidates to make it even more challenging just takes that much time. So if it's a, if it's a critical to fill because we're going to lose revenues or customers or what have you sort of equation that they're trying to solve, it can be really tricky because they know that they could fill it with, you know, a man quickly. Um, 
and even if they get female candidates, I mean, they still might go with the men. But statistically, you know, as weird as this might sound, uh, if you have, for example, a short list of four, two are men, two are women, uh, you know, 50% of the time, a woman's going to get hired. You know, weird how that turns out. Yeah, but there's been all kinds of studies around that. Okay, interesting. Yeah, no, I... The, the whole space kind of fascinates me because, like, I, I have a daughter myself, and she's three, so she's long ways away from kind of entering the workforce. But it's something that I start kind of at least thinking about, or, or you need to at least kind of start talking to her about at some point, or, or basically telling her you can do whatever you want to do, and, you know, I'll support you with that. But, you know, the you're right to your point. Like, if a company does things that are kind of inappropriate, like a meeting spot or business whatever it doesn't really matter like how do you deal with that or not deal with that and and the, the thing that I keep coming back to is obviously there's certain people and I'm sure everybody has one either in their family or knows somebody friend of a friend or it doesn't really matter that is very against kind of changing their archaic beliefs for lack of a better term for it and um, <clears throat> they're I guess the the argument that I always bring to them is like, take pretty much like Apple and Google, the two most valuable companies on the planet, are spending a lot of time, and they're not perfect, I'm not trying to say that, but they're spending a lot of time trying to add diversity, whether it's male, female, just people of different kind of nationalities and backgrounds and from different parts of the world, so they can actually basically understand those different types of people and be able to make their products and services better for kind of a global audience, right? And I think it's kind of naive for companies to not start thinking about kind of the global marketplace, especially if you're in tech, right? Like there's so many more people in other parts of the world that don't, have never been to North America, maybe will never even go to North America. But, you know, and North American culture is obviously kind of come over and and as they're getting more and more people online they're going to start seeing you know everything that's happening because you could basically you know with a click of a button read the news and you know walk the streets of any country in the world now basically with street view that i think more and more people are you're just kind of limiting yourself because it could be potential customers or audience or, or whatever you're kind of going after it just seems kind of crazy to not care about this global market that we've basically opened up with the internet. Is that fair to say, or, or is there holes in my kind of statement there? No, I think that that's, that's one way to look at it. A lot of it has to do with um, your audience, but you know, when I say your audience, I mean, you know, whatever that particular company's customer base. Um, but in, you know, for example, in Europe, you've got a lot of European companies that, or countries that require a certain percentage of women on boards or you know, a certain percentage of women in leadership teams. Um, you know, you, you don't see that in the U.S. yet. It, it may happen. It may never happen. Um, but it's, it's matching your audience, matching your customer base. I mean, you want your company to look like the population that you serve. Uh, and you know the interesting thing, a lot of a lot of spending decisions. I mean, women in the U.S. control tons of spend, far more than than men. And yet, in a lot of organizations that are creating the products or services that those women are are buying, like all of us are buying, uh, you know, you've got a bunch of men 
that are responsible for marketing and responsible for creation and responsible for all of these things that women are looking at saying, oh, that doesn't resonate with me. And, and no big shock when you've got a whole bunch of men that are trying to think about these products and these solutions through the lens of the male eye uh, when their customer base is, you know, largely women a lot of the time. Sure. Well, and in just like even the, the, the markets you guys play in, like, you know, software and healthcare and kind of the industrials, like everybody needs to build products that appeal to kind of anybody on the planet for the most part, right? Like most people nowadays use uh, the internet, you know, and more and more people are coming on, like pretty much everybody needs healthcare or comes in contact with a doctor at some point, right? Like it doesn't really, age, gender, race doesn't really matter in that sense, right? Or kind of some of the, you know, even hardware stuff, like you need to build kind of, you can clearly see whether something's kind of designed, whether it's more kind of male or female looking, right? Like, and I don't say one's better than the other. It's just like, traditionally, there's certain things that appeal more to male or, or females based on just like kind of look and feel, right? Right. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. I think, I think uh, a, a lot of the challenge uh, is that it's a lot of what you're talking about when it comes to uh, gender is is very subtle. I mean, I have I have yet in 20 years of executive search to have anybody verbalize, I don't want to hire a woman. Uh, you know, nobody's nobody's going to say that. Uh, and yet you've got all kinds of studies out there. For example, if uh, in some of these different settings where you know, researchers are measuring different things if you know there's a man and a woman who have each accomplished similar things both men and women perceive that the man should get more credit i mean it's it's ridiculous stuff like that it's just sort of insidious and it creeps in everywhere and there's all this bias and things like that that, that most people aren't even aware of you know i think by and large the the stories that we hear about you know, when it's sexual harassment, and I think that there's there's far more of that than happens than we would ever ever realize, or that would ever be, you know, talked about in the news or written about in different publications. Sure. Um, you know that that stuff happens a lot, but by and large, you know, most most men are, I mean, they they don't look at gender or they don't look at you know, whatever that characteristic might be. You know, most of these company leaders that I've interacted with and experienced, you know, they are interested in talent as the primary driver. Who's the best person for this role? And oftentimes, you know, there are characteristics that are more important than talent or experience. There's just things that they need somebody to bring to the organization, whether there's cultural aspects around we need more energy or maybe they need less energy, sure. uh, or they just you know there's something that they need that that you know experience and and um, sort of what somebody's done in their career gets gets trumped by one of those other characteristics. No, that that makes makes a lot of sense, and I I think the other thing too that I've always kind of thought was interesting was you don't understand how important experience is until you have it. Like that's always something that I that I've always kind of like, I'm, I'm a millennial, I'm, I'm 34. So I'm like just a millennial, I guess. But I've yeah. always, that's always kind of been interesting to me because I've been in the software space a long time and just watching kind of new grads come out of school and they work under you and, you know, they have great ideas, but 
sometimes it's like those ideas just can't be executed for a handful of reasons, not good or bad. It's just, but if, if somebody, and it's usually somebody with experience basically for crushing their, their, their dreams a little bit saying, no, 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 we can't do that for these reasons. And I've found even in my own experience that like sometimes you don't understand. And then as you get older and you're, you're more in your career, you're, you understand, you're like, oh yeah, okay, I totally get why like I couldn't do that back in the day. And then you have to tell, be the one sometimes making those calls. And that's always been kind of interesting to me when you, when you kind of look at the whole space and you're like, okay, well, we can't do this for this reason or that reason or budget or timeline or whatever. There could be a handful of reasons, right? And so mm-hmm. I think the struggle and the, the point that I'm, I'm just trying to get is sometimes you need to go to somebody like you guys to find somebody with that experience sometimes, right? Because your internal, you might not have, people might just not have the experience in the organization to do that. And I'm assuming that you guys help with with that quite a bit. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, there's, no, go go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. It's okay. I was just going to say that there's a there's a really interesting dynamic that's happening, and it's going to happen, continue happening, for I think until uh, you know 2027 or something like that, which is that this baby boomer generation is retiring, and the statistic is is mind blowing. The the number of people that statistically retire every day and will retire every day until that that date is like 10,000 a day. Wow. It's it's crazy, and that started back in that's a 19 year generation. So it started, um, you know, early 2012, 2011, something like that. That's that's the statistic, and it's and it's pretty accurate. Um, in which you've got effectively our our three generations. So you've got that baby boomer generation that's that's retiring and nearing the sunset of their careers, even if they haven't retired yet. And you've got that group in the middle, and then you've got to sort of get this millennial group up to speed. And to your point around experience, uh, it's been a sort of interesting transition with how SaaS software or this uh, you know software as a service versus a, a classic license model has taken over. And a lot of the companies that are selling SaaS applications today are doing so with a completely different methodology, which is they're not building big sales teams of outside salespeople who are sort of classically trained at doing discovery and uncovering needs and, and selling value. Uh, that model is just different. So a lot of times the sales process today is sell over the phone, sell via webinar or you know video, uh, and typically what they're bringing in are sort of young, inexperienced, but the thought is being high energy that are willing to sort of bang the phone or send a, a you know a thousand emails every day, um, and you know that that might work, but what you're what a lot of companies are starting to discover, and I and I hate to say this uh, and paint with this broad brush, but I will tell you that I've got multiple tech companies that I work with whose most senior executives have said to me, point blank, do not bring me a millennial. No, fair enough. <laughs> and, yeah, and the reason that they're saying that has everything to do with exactly what you're talking about, which is 
a lack of experience, not only in doing the work, but a lack of experience around even what work is. Sure. So the people that are making those hiring decisions are used to work being defined a certain way. And millennials just view work differently in many cases. And, you know, that's great, but it doesn't serve them when the audience that is going to be hiring them expects something different than, you know, what it is that they think. So I think oftentimes what you've got to find is, uh, you know, the characteristics that, are, that everybody seeks, which are people that have drive and passion and are willing to work hard. And unfortunately, you know, the, the view of a lot of millennials is that they just aren't willing to, to work hard. And I know that you know, for people that might be listening to this right now who say, oh, that's not really fair, you know, I, I didn't say it, but a lot of my clients have absolutely said it. But see, I, I love the fact that you're willing to kind of openly say that. And to be honest, I love when people say that about the millennial generation because the thing that I see that is like, at least for me, I need some sort of kind of like motivator to prove people wrong. And so right. for me, it, like for the people that actually, I, and maybe this people will get mad at me for saying this, but I, I think the thing that people are forgetting is if you're, and to your client's point, like if they're looking for a certain type of person or skill set or both, and if I want to work for that company or that person, and if I don't kind of accept that or kind of, you know, whatever that is, then I might not be able to work. And the, the, at the end of the day, it's the people that are willing to kind of suck it up and do it or, or kind of, I, I think a better way to put it is it's a hell of a lot easier to be kind of a rebel in the system than trying to change the entire system to fit kind of your your mindset. And people might hate me for saying that, but... I've spent, I've been more successful in my career going that route than trying to change everything around you because that's never going to happen, right? Like it, unless you run your own company and you hire your own people, then you can't really expect other companies that are looking for a different viewpoint to kind of hire you. I, I think that's kind of totally ludicrous, right? It, at least in my experience yeah. and as a millennial, like I love when people say like, you're, you're lazy and you're garbage. And it's like, okay, well, you're basing that on kind of a, a general thing. But I also kind of like that, that the bar is basically set. There is no bar. Like the bar is basically like on the ground. And if you pick up the bar or you like actually show people that you care and you're, you're willing to, you know, like work your ass off, that it, the people that are willing to do that as kind of a millennial are going to go way further than the people that are just like, nah, I'm just going to wait around until, you know, people change to my way of thinking. So for me, I think that's almost been like the greatest thing that's ever happened to my generation, in, in my opinion. Yeah, and I don't know that that's fair. I think probably every generation has some stereotype sure. that well, I think every generation has you know, people gets that applied are lazy, to them right and I think every sure. generation has people that are workaholics and we're willing to do everything and sacrifice everything to climb the corporate ladder and I don't think one's necessarily better than the other it's just you can't complain if you don't kind of make yourself hireable in today's market that's my opinion yeah I agree with that <laughs> and and, and so it, it, it's interesting 
and 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 I'm curious to know your kind of take on this because I've always kind of spent I usually around Christmas time or, or early in the new year every year I try to go like you know read job postings of the industry that I'm in and I say like okay do I know these skills do I need to learn some new stuff or or whatnot and then I kind of reevaluate okay maybe I should learn or look into these few things and then decide if I want to kind of learn that or not learn that to stay kind of relevant and I don't think that has anything to do with age or kind of generation I, I think if you want to stay current you need to be constantly kind of learning and updating yourself or at least looking into things or at least understanding especially if you're looking for a new job or you're looking to go work at the top companies like you guys work with like I'm I have your your portfolio set up like you guys have worked with some huge global brands right and if these people are coming to you looking for certain skill sets and you want to go work for these big names well you need to spend some time and actually learn and update yourself to stay relevant so these big name companies will try to seek you out or, or at least call you in for an interview if you apply fair to say sure. it is so we are coming kind of the end of the show, but I, I am kind of curious to know what do you kind of tell people that are actually actively kind of maybe at a job they're happy with, but maybe looking for, for something in the next couple of years? Is there anything they can kind of do? Do, do you guys or, or do you guys kind of take people that are that are maybe saying, you know, like one day I would really like to do this job at this type of company do you, do you work with people like that or or how do you kind of tell people that aren't really looking but are are kind of in some ways i think you should always kind of be looking to upgrade right if you have it really great then right. it's harder to move on but what do you kind of tell people around that yeah it's interesting so so most of the time we're reaching out to people cold a lot of the time they've okay. they don't know us we've never talked to them uh, and, and the most basic question that we pose to people really early in our conversation is, are you open to the potential of making a change? Okay. Or are you open to listening to other opportunities? Uh, and I'm always amazed at the number of people that say, no, you know, I'm not, I'm not interested in listening because it never hurts to listen. So it's always a little bit mind blowing. And I understand that it might be tough to, to, for somebody to make a change, um, but it, it can't hurt you to know what's going on in the market. So that would be the first thing. I would, I would advise anybody when a recruiter calls, at least take the call. At least listen to what the person has to say because that's just smart. And it's, you know, it's not only going to cost you a few minutes of your time. Uh, when it comes to sort of you know, what you're talking about, the question that you're asking around you know, what skills do they need to acquire, where do they want to take their career, you know, a lot of people just bluntly – uh, are not they're not focused a lot on their ultimate end career goal. You know, a lot of a lot of people make changes from one company to another or from one position to another because the opportunity presents itself, not because they're out there looking for it. So a lot of people don't even put that much thought or effort into you know what's my career goal? Where do I want to go? What do I want to be someday? Uh, no matter how old somebody might be talking, you know, that I might be talking to is, I always ask them the question just to have some fun with it. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up, even if they've been working for 25 years? Because everybody still thinks about their career that way. I find that to be universally true. 
Interesting. But here's so here's a little bit of of the secret sauce that that we ask everybody, and this is would be one thing that I would encourage anybody that's listening to this to do. It's a really simple exercise. I ask it of almost everybody that I talk to. I don't care if you're a CEO, if you're a salesperson, or whatever the case might be. Uh, but it is to really understand what it is that you're great at. Okay. So when I ask somebody, when I engage somebody in a conversation, I want to know what they really love to do, what they're really, really good at. And effectively, what I'm trying to, to pull out of them is what is the value that they can bring to another company? If they were to leave their current employer, what's the value that they bring? And a lot of people really struggle to articulate the value that they could bring to an organization, even people that have been wildly successful. Uh, and again, you know, this is, this is something that, that women often really struggle with more than men is to, to look at the things that they've accomplished. And, you know, brag is probably too strong a word, but to, to point at those things and say, I did this. Right. And, and most people in general, man, woman, doesn't really matter. Uh, that's a challenge for a lot of people to, to talk about what it is that they're good at or what it is that, um, that they love to do. But I think that if you can have that little commercial ready uh, to be able to talk to somebody about what it is that makes you great, you're, you're miles ahead of your competition when it comes to the potential of at least getting into that interview process or getting deep into that interview process. Sure. No, I, I think that's, that's actually really good advice. Is there anything else that you you kind of tell people to, to think about or or kind of worry about even if they're not really kind of looking? Um, no, I mean, you know, I think that that there's this idea out there that recruiters have this magical ability uh, to pull people out of companies. You know, we'll hear that from a lot of people. Oh, don't steal my people. You know, and I got bad news for you. You know, recruiters don't steal anybody. Recruiters uh, talk to enough people to be able to take advantage of helping people to advance their career or helping to put them in situations that allow them to make more money or experience more happiness. Uh, but if they're going to leave, there's a bigger problem than I happen to call them on that particular day. Sure. Uh, but the other thing is, I mean, I tell far more people to stay in their current job than to present them with an opportunity that I'm working on. A lot of the time, even if I'm talking to somebody that has a great background, Kevin, you know, there's things about it that just don't make it a great fit. There's reasons that they shouldn't do it, whether it's a bad culture fit, whether it's a challenge to their quality of life that they really like, uh, whether or not the money is worth it sometime, or maybe they're just on a career path in their current company that they really need to stay and explore. And we tell people to stay where they are a lot of the time. Interesting. Because that's what's, that's what's best for them. You know, and that's the thing that separates a really, really good recruiter from a really, really garbage recruiter, sure. is that a garbage recruiter is interested in what's best for them, the recruiter. Sure. And a good recruiter is what's interested in best for their, you know, what's best for their client and what's best for the candidate that they're talking to. Sure. Uh, and if it's not in the best interest of the candidate or the client, then, then it shouldn't happen. And that's the distinction between good recruiter bad recruiter no I'm, I'm happy that you said that because we I'm sure we've all gotten those emails where I remember this one I got like 
I got a message about a job that I, you, if you would have spent three seconds reading my LinkedIn profile that I wasn't even a fit for and I had none of the skills you were looking for. But the icing on the right. cake was when you told me and you wrote, a, it was clearly just like a copy and paste from somewhere, why right. I should move to the city that I'm, I was born and raised in and currently living. That was my favorite experience with like the terrible recruiter. I didn't even write back because I was like, it's a waste of time. But like, so I, I'm sure we've all kind of had those experiences where, you know, but you can, but to your point though, you can genuinely tell when somebody reaches out to you that is generally spent, you know, a few minutes or, or maybe even a while looking at kind of who you are online across your different kind of profiles online to actually give you like a a good like hey I, I checked you out here here and here I understand what you're doing I think you'd be a really good fit for this like it you can clearly tell when you get contacted by like a good or bad recruiter right so to your point Absolutely. I think it makes a, it does make a lot of sense to at least take a call with it with the good ones right yeah I mean you should take a call from anybody like you said you're gonna smoke out very quickly if you're if you're dealing with a quality recruiter or not and one of the, the most dead giveaways is if a recruiter who doesn't know anything about you Kevin calls up and immediately starts pitching a job mm -hmm. uh, that's that's an indication that the recruiter is is most interested in serving him or herself sure. versus serving you I mean if I don't know anything about you how can I how can I realistically tell you that I've got the greatest job in the world for you sure. it's ridiculous sure no, I, I, I think that's that's great. Yeah, so, but sadly, we're, we're coming to the end of the show. So let's close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and the company. Sure. Um, so we've got a, a web page, like most companies do. It's um, valorpartners.com, and that's spelled V-A-L-O-R, partners, all one word, dot com. Uh, if somebody wanted to reach out to me directly with, questions or maybe they've got some comment, they can certainly reach out to me directly at my email address, which is just djohnson at valorpartners.com. And if somebody wanted to get in touch with me by phone, uh, I always welcome that. Um, I'll even give you my direct line, which is 540-492-4250. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day. All right. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. All right. Later. Yep, bye-bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and keep them in the future.